Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and James Bijan. Uh, Jeff Myers, who is usually with us on the podcast, has pastoral concerns in his home church, and so he's had to miss uh, this recording session. We hope he'll return soon and record with us later. Brian Motes, as usual, is taking care of the technical side of things, recording and editing and smoothing everything over so that we don't sound silly and so we have uh, something that can be listened to easily that goes out into the public domain. Uh, we've taken a break for the last several weeks, and Brian has been supplying other sorts of podcasts. Uh, we've taken a break from our regular series, which is in the book of Deuteronomy. But with this episode, we're returning to that series. We've been going through the whole book of Deuteronomy. We plan to finish the book of Deuteronomy, however long it takes. Uh, we're currently in the middle of chapter 22. And as I've said repeatedly in these introductions, there's a long stretch of Deuteronomy that is organized by the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments that are revealed on Mount Sinai. And you can see how Moses is preaching through these Ten Words in sequence. As we've seen along the way, some of the uh, applications he makes and the ways that he expounds on these commandments are surprising and not things that we would normally associate with the commandments. He seems to ignore things that we we wish he would talk about and deal with things that don't seem uh, as directly related. But that's part of the puzzle and part of the joy of working through Deuteronomy is trying to see how the different sections of Deuteronomy do, in fact, correspond to that 10-word sequence, which is the organizing principle of basically chapters 20 through 25 or 26. As I said, we're in chapter 22. Uh, we've just finished the section that has to do with the sixth word. In our reckoning, the sixth word is thou shalt not murder, and we've looked at various facets of the commandment against murder. Uh, cities of refuge are at the beginning of that section, cities of refuge that provide a place of refuge, as the name suggests, for people who are guilty of manslaughter, not murder. There are rules of war in that section. There are There's a section that has to do with unsolved murders and how Israel deals with unsolved murders and how they purge the land when there's uh, a a body on the land, that, and they, they can't find the person who's responsible for killing the person. That section deals with rebellious sons. At the beginning of chapter 22, it deals with care for your neighbor's property. So part of the a commandment not to murder is to support the life of your neighbor, not just his bare biological life and protect him, but also to support his, support his means of existence. So if he has work animals, for example, that wander away and you come upon them, or things that he's lost that he needs, and you find them, uh, you can't take them, you can't ignore them. You're supposed to pick them up and take them into safekeeping until your neighbor comes looking for them. So that's what's well, an application of the command: "Thou shalt not murder," because you're supporting the way the the means of livelihood for the for your brother and for your neighbor. The seventh word section begins in chapter 22, verse nine. That's kind of our stipulated starting point, and I'm going to offer some reasons for thinking that that is in fact a starting point. Uh, and this section continues on till the middle of chapter 23, which is uh, uh, in, in verse 14 of chapter 23. Uh, and some of this section uh, is obviously under the seventh word heading. Uh, the seventh word is thou shalt not commit adultery. Uh, and this section deals, as we'll, as we'll see in this episode and also in the next episode, it deals with sexual sins and the punishment of sexual crimes. The different it has a number of different case scenarios of people of different marital status uh, who engage in sexual relations with one another and the different punishments that are involved and the different factors that are involved in in making those decisions. So uh, the latter part of chapter 20, 22 is pretty obviously part of the part of the legislation having to do with uh, the seventh word. But the seventh word section actually begins in verses nine through twelve of chapter twenty two with a series of laws about forbidden mixtures. At the beginning of chapter 23, it has to do with membership in the assembly of uh, Yahweh, the Kahal of Yahweh. Um, and um, then it goes on to have several rules about keeping the war camp pure. Uh, and those are not obviously under the heading of the seventh word. I think that the issue of uh, the, the member membership in the assembly of the Lord has to do with who is included and who is excluded. And part of the exclusion has to do with different peoples and ancestries. So there's a connection with, obviously, uh, sexual laws have to do with uh, sex produces children, lines of children produce nations and peoples, 
And so generally speaking, the first part of chapter 23 can come out of the heading of the seventh word because it's dealing with relations between different peoples. Uh, and then the concerns of the war camp, I think uh, we can, we'll have to uh, talk about the, the links with the seventh word when we get there. But at least one link is that one of the one of the things that's specifically mentioned is a nocturnal emission. A soldier has a nocturnal emission, a seminal emission that defiles the war camp, uh, and uh, the war camp has to be kept holy because Yahweh is present in the war camp. And so there's uh, there's a, an issue related to sexual sexuality that's included in there, uh, as well as some other things. So we'll have to we'll have to talk about that when we get there. But you can see some some uh, at least some general connections between uh, those other other sections of the seventh word portion uh, and the seventh word itself. Uh, Jim Jordan in his book on covenant sequence in Leviticus and Deuteronomy suggests that there's a kind of chiastic structure that grows out of the three rules of uh, forbidden mixtures. And I'm going to outline that and then I, I propose one one detail that I think kind of supports it. You have three zones of concern with the forbidden mixtures, the vineyard, the field where you're plowing uh, and uh, the uh, and clothing, um, and he suggests that those three concerns: uh, not sowing two kinds of seed in your vineyard, not plowing with two kinds of animals, not wearing uh, a material of wool and linen mixed. Those uh, open up the seventh word section. The seventh word has to do with sexual relations, has to do with mixtures, bodily mixtures mixtures of ancestries and bloodlines and lines of uh, lines of descent. So you can see in generally how how those uh, laws are related. But he suggests that the vineyard, which is mentioned in verse 9, corresponds to the war camp, which is in the last part of this section. Plowing with the ox and donkey together would correspond to the uh, union of uh, Israel with other nations within the assembly of the Lord, the field of the Lord. Uh, and then the rule about forbidden mixtures and verse 12, which has to do with tassels on the corners of your garments, those two rules about uh, about garments uh, would link up with the specifically sexual laws in uh, verses 13 through 30 of, of chapter 22. That makes symbolic sense because in the Bible, the uh, one of the symbols of marital union is that a man stretches the, the wing of his garment over his bride. That's what... Um, Ruth requests in in uh, Ruth chapter three when she visits Boaz at night, she asks him to spread his wing over her, uh, and so a concern with garments con uh, and particularly with wings of garments. Wings are mentioned in verse thirteen. Uh, that uh, naturally uh, symbolically leads into concern with marital relations. Uh, one one particular detail that I think supports this that indicates that uh, verses at least verses thirteen through thirty kind of form a unit. Uh, is that there's an inclusio around that section. Uh, verse 13 says, uh, uh, sorry, verse 12 and verse 30, uh, you shall make yourselves tassels on the four wings of your garments. The Hebrew word is kanaf. So you have the wing of the garment mentioned in verse 12. In verse 30, a man shall not take his father's wife, so he shall not uncover his father's wing or skirt. Uh, so the word wing occurs in both cases. In the first case, it ha just has to do with the clothing that Israelites are supposed to wear. In the last case, it has to do with the father's covering of his wife uh, and the uh, prohibition against entering, uh, you know, peel peeling back that covering and exposing the nakedness of your father by taking taking uh, your mother or your father's wife as a sexual partner. But the fact that you have wing at both ends, wing in verse 12, wing in verse 30, uh, that forms an inclusio around these uh, set of rules about sexuality and suggest that Jordan's on the right track to think that the uh, concern about clothing is related to uh, this. It's related to the marital symbolism that we find in the Bible. So that doesn't prove the whole chiasm, but at least that chiasm will give a, a, a possible way of thinking about the the unity of this section, uh, and also might open up some ways of thinking about the forbidden mixtures that are uh, that introduce the section in verses nine through uh, nine through twelve. Yeah, something else that might go with that, I guess, is that if, if I'm understanding you right, that chiastic structure would have the um, not ploughing, not um, with an ox and a donkey together, um, that structure would align it with 23 onwards, so the um, uh, chapter 23 onwards, so the unions with um, Ammonites and Moabites. And um, there seems to be a synergy there, especially thinking about Paul's 
command not to be yoked with with an unbeliever. Um, this isn't just living alongside um, an Ammonite or Moabite. This is kind of um, doing religious service together, entering the assembly, and, and so on. So a kind of um, unequal yoke would would seem to link those together quite quite well. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, it's not clear what the what the assembly is. We'll have, again, this question we'll have to address when we get there. Uh, whether it's a politic, more political assembly or a liturgical assembly or some combination, my suspicion is that it's a covenantal assembly. But um, you know, if you think of the land as Yahweh's field, Yahweh's land that Israel is supposed to uh, care for and plow and to keep fertile, then the assembly of the Lord uh, and relations with other nations in the assembly of the Lord uh, would would link up with that. If I remember correctly, um, Colin Carmichael talks about the relationship potentially between this law and the events in Genesis chapter 34 with the um, abduction rape of Dinah and the relationship between Hamor, who's connected with the the donkey or the ass, and then with, with Jacob, who's later on described um, as, or the ox that is hamstrung in chapter 49, um, in the judgment upon Levi and Simeon and the joining together of those two lines um, being symbolically represented within this commandment. I think another thing that's worth noting is the way that various bodies of these commandments are framed by symbolic commandments. So you have, for instance, the law concerning boiling the kid in its mother's milk. You have these symbolic commandments here. Later on, you'll have muslin not muzzling the ox as it treads out the grain. And these symbolic commandments can provide lenses through which to view the body of material that follows or precedes them. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's really helpful. Uh, one thing I wanted to highlight that uh, I know James has uh, recently uh, released a uh, one of his classic Twitter threads that is re- relevant to this. Uh, translations typically get verse 9 wrong. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest all the produce of the seed which you have sown and the increase of the vineyard become defiled, is what I have in my New American Standard Bible. Uh, I think other translations suggest, um, uh, translate as um, forfeited or something along those lines. Uh, forfeited is closer, but I think it still misses the the thrust of what the text is saying because the verb there is kadash, and uh, kadash is the the root for the word the whole word group of holiness, Saint is a form of Kadash. Sanctuary is a form of Kadash. Consecrate is a form of Kadash. When Yahweh says, I am holy, be holy because I am holy, that's Kadash. Uh, and so it's going in the opposite direction of what my Bible suggests. It's not that a mixture is defiling or defiled. Rather, it's um, the mixture is holy. Yes, we, we could say, couldn't we, that forfeit gets the sense right. You know, it it the owner of the vineyard loses the crop it becomes out of bounds to him but perhaps um slightly obscures the logic or something right right and uh, james you had uh, some thoughts i think about what uh, what what the logic is behind that why would mixtures a mixture of seed in a in a vineyard uh and then uh, perhaps we can apply the same kind of logic to the other two examples of mixtures the ox and the donkey together is not forbidden because it's defiling, but forbidden because it's some kind of uh, some kind of sacred relation. Uh, and then the material of wool and linen—that's uh, uh, that's true of the priestly garments. The priests wear wool and linen mixed together, and so uh, it's arguable that all of them have that same logic. But uh, you had some thoughts about how why mixtures qualify as holy, why how they get the status of being holy. So I guess my general. Um um or the the logic that i thought made sense of some of this is the idea that as a average israelite um you are permitted to have things that are common and clean um and so that would encompass a huge amount of um things huge amount of activities foods places that you can go etc um things can then be out of bounds to you, either because they're um, unclean, so that would cover certain um, animals, uh, certain like eating certain animals, certain 
activities, um, etc. Um, but things can also become out of bounds to you um, because they're holy, which would mean that they kind of they leave the common realm. They go into this holy realm, which is then appropriate only really for priests and um, and God. Um, and I guess we could sort of see some concentric circles within um, to to some extent there. But um, things that might fall into that bracket, the um, the anointing oil that, that was made, um, that was fine for priests. It in fact made them holy, but um, normal people couldn't make it. Um, Aaron's and his son's ordination sacrifices, they, they could eat. Um, true of other sacrifices as, as well, which the Israelites couldn't. Um, they could go places that um, a, a common Israelite couldn't. So um, that was what I think kind of sits be behind this, that um, uh, as an average Israelite can enjoy things which are common um, or clean, once they become uncommon, i.e. holy, or unclean, then um, they're kind of out of bounds to him. And we can apply kind of similar uh, ideas to, to cherem and what's taken in cherem warfare, um, what's dedicated to the priesthood in, um, where is it, Leviticus 27. Um, if you um, dedicate the produce of your field to the priesthood, then it becomes holy. Um, he can enjoy it and you have to redeem it. You have to buy it back if you want to bring it back into the common um, sphere. Um, and so uh, I think that's the logic. Yeah, and would you go further and think that uh, behind that is um, you, you alluded to this as as I did that behind that is the fact that Yahweh Himself is associated with these various mixtures, and the the clearest one would be the garment of verse eleven with the mixture of wool and linen material, uh, which is as I said the priestly garments, the tabernacle curtains also have and and screens also have a mixture of the two. Uh, I should say the way we know that uh, that they're a mixture of the two is the fact that they are multiple colors. And in the ancient world, wool would be dyed, uh, linen would not be dyed. So if you have a garment that has a mixture of different threads in it, then that means that you have uh, the linen that is its natural color and then wool that's been dyed uh, various other colors in the priestly garments and in the tabernacle cur curtains. So the fact that there are there's a mixture, but that mixture is associated with the holy place. It's associated with the holy people, the holy personnel of the tabernacle. And uh, maybe you could extend that and think about, you know, uh, Yahweh, does Yahweh sow his vineyard if Israel is his vineyard? Does he sow his vineyard with multiple kinds of seed? Is that suggesting, um, as the union of ox and donkey in verse 10, is that suggesting some union of different peoples uh, of uh, different different lines. If you have, if if seed is linked up with uh, sexuality and with descent, the seed is the son that's going to be born. Is that a way of thinking about the the what makes that holy? Is the fact that the Lord is that's what the Lord does, and uh, you you avoid that kind of mixture. Or uh, I think Jim Jordan suggests this kind of thing. If you're if you're in the tabernacle, there is in fact that that's the Lord's house, the Lord's vineyard, as it, as it were. Uh, there's bread on the table of showbread. There's also wine inside the, there's not drunk, but there's wine that's used as libations inside the holy place. There's the, so there's a mixture of mixture of seed or mis, mixture of vegetable products that are in the house of the Lord. And because they're associated with the house of the Lord, that prohibits them. That means that Israel is prohibited from making that mixture. Similar to what you're saying about the, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the incense uh, and the, uh, uh, and the anointing oil, they're mixtures that are only for the purpose of uh, anointing in, uh, priests in the tabernacle. Mixture of incense is only used in the tabernacle. Would you see the tassels as an exception um, in the immediate context to that rule, where you presumably have dyed wool mixed with linen garments, but it's a specific item that is representing the holiness of the people, the Lord, so they can't make their own garments that have this mixture, but they will wear garments that have that mixture given to them by the Lord. Right. That mixture kind of at the edges, at the wings, right? I, um, the other place that talks about the tassels is Numbers 15, and that's where we get the 
fact that there's there's colored thread in the tassel, which, as you say, Alistair, would uh, suggest the the same kind of uh, holy mixture that you have in the priestly garments. They don't, yeah, they don't wear the priestly garments, but they have a hint of their priestly status in the wings of the garments that they wear. Yes, I wonder if the idea of concentric circles could be helpful there. There is a sense in which all Israel is holy, says that in Leviticus, doesn't it? Um, as a nation, she is holy to the Lord. And so that kind of uh, designation of or reflection of holiness throughout the whole nation could be one level. And then the mixture could, I guess, become more prominent as you come towards the um, tabernacle and, and different garments and so forth. Yeah, it, uh, Peter Philip Jensen has a uh, book from hmm, the late 90s or the early 2000s, uh, kind of the crucial book for me in understanding the Levitical system called Graded Holiness. And that's that's his argument that there's uh, different intensities of holiness. The Kind of the fundamental uh, level of that is spatial. So you have uh, places that are further away from the dwelling place of the Lord, but uh, where the Lord dwells, that is the most intense holiness. And everything associated with that place has an intensity of holiness that, that other things do not. So the furnishings of the tabernacle, the curtains of the tabernacle, the incense, the anointing oil, the priests, uh, food that's offered on the on the altar, uh, food that's reserved for the priests, that's all associated with that most intense holy space of the tabernacle. As you get out to the courtyard, as you get outside the tabernacle, you still have uh, forms of holiness that Israel is called to, but they don't have the same kind of intensity. And so you don't have you don't have the same kinds of rules that you have and the same kind of restrictions that you have at a distance that you do with, with the priest. The giving of the tassels in Numbers chapter 15 is also framed on the its side by the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram where that question of levels of holiness is absolutely key. Um, the way that they're seeking to usurp the place of Aaron and Moses and um, assert the claim that everyone in the congregation has a sort of equal holiness and that they, in Aaron and Moses, are um, taking a prominence that isn't proper to them. And so the gift of the tassels is interpreted in part by the restriction upon that graded holiness that we see in the cho- in the story that follows in Numbers chapter sixteen and seventeen. I mean, uh, point to something that uh, might dislodge some ideas. I don't know where to go with this, but uh, the the uh, sequence was uh, intriguing to me. Uh, if we back up a verse, we've been looking at verses nine through twelve. If we back up to what we said was the last verse of the Sixth word section, verse eight, when you build a new house, make a parapet for your roof and so on. Um, so there's concern with house. Uh, the immediate next verse has to do with a vineyard. If you sow your vineyard, don't sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed. Uh, and then a, a, a few further verses down, uh, verse 13 starts out the specifically sexual portion of this sex, uh, of the legislation by saying, if any man takes a wife and goes into, goes into her. We've seen that that cluster of things, not not in that order, I don't think, but that cluster of things back in chapter 20, uh, when it was talking about the uh, rules of warfare and what Israel was, um, Israelites were were uh, uh, were permitted to, they, they weren't subject to a draft, they weren't subject to, to uh, uh, military service if they had just built a house and hadn't dedicated it, if they had just a vineyard and they hadn't enjoyed the fruit, if they had just taken a wife uh, and or were engaged to the wife, and they hadn't they hadn't consummated that uh, that marriage. Maybe the order is the same. I don't remember in ver- in chapter twenty, but uh, the sequence of house, vineyard, wife struck me. And I don't know if there's any more substantive connection. Does that does that uh, dislodge any ideas about how they how this might be connected to the rules of warfare? Apparently not. Hearing hearing none. I'm afraid. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I wonder, uh, one thought that occurs I, to me as, as I'm asking the question is, uh, is this somehow uh, setting up for the concern with the war camp that comes later on in this section, in chapter 23? I think there are also connections with the 
question of marrying female captives and the laws concerning divorce in the later part of chapter 22. James, was that were you going to follow that grunt with a comment, or were you just uh, a, a, a grunt of uh, contemplation, a bare a, a bare grunt? Yeah, I, I well, I was going to ask Alistair um, your question about verse twelve. Alistair, were you um, asking are these tassels a contravention of verse eleven, which is sanctioned because it's by the Lord's command? Or would they not actually qualify as such a mixture in, in the first place? Was that what you were asking? Um, yes, I, I was suggesting that this actually is an exception to the rule, that the tassels that they're required to make are a holy mixture, uh, which mm. represents their devoted status. Now, that is in the context of Numbers 15 to 16, very clearly not something that entails the holiness of the high priest or the holiness of Moses, but it still entails something of, or it still reveals something of Israel's dedicated status. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. I I was... On Peter's question, the other thing I was wondering about is the judgment concerning unsolved murders in the open country and the judgment concerning rape in the open country. It seems that both are dealing with similar issues so there are further parallels there mm. yeah on the on the tassels uh i think i think we can say that the it's a it's a kind of exception but it's an exception that operates by the same principle that mixtures are holy so your for israelites are in general are forbidden to have the completely mixed garments of the high priest but um they have this hint of mixed garment that that designates them as, as you said, James, a different, a different uh, level of holiness. They're not in the in the center as the priests are of that series of concentric circles, uh, but still they're nearer than other peoples are. Yeah, I mean, if if we wanted to um, kind of carve them out and, and say they're not actually a um, contravention, verse eleven, I, I guess we could. It, w- it would depend how we take this notion of a mixture. I mean, it's. it's it's a very unusual word for mixture there. I don't know kind of anything about it, but the um, the term for these tassels, like the the root of it is just to be t- sort of twisted together. And so you could maybe say that kind of one has in mind the actual interweaving of wool and linen into a single um, kind of coherent garment in some way, um, in, in much the same way as kind of the yoking of the oxen and donkey take, takes place, but that um, it's kind of a looser connection in, in verse 12 with, with these tassels or something. They're not actually interwoven, but just sort of, um, yeah, part part of attached to the same garment or something. I think that one of the things I uh, think is worth going back to is the fact that, again, in our reckoning, this is the beginning of the seventh word section. So these forbidden mixtures have something to do with uh, sexual unions that are going to be the concern of the next section of chapter 22, which in turn has something to do with the mixture of different peoples in the assembly of the Lord, which in turn has something to do with Israel's presence, the presence of Israel's army in the war camp. But the, the the fact that we start the seventh word section with, uh, or the, the theory, let me put it uh, somewhat more weakly, the theory that we start the seventh word section with forbidden mixtures uh, that go to, uh, agricultural practices of where you sow and uh, what animals you use in uh, plowing uh, and what you wear on your body. We start with those kinds of things, but then that's part of the the uh, legislation. It's part of the seventh word. Forbidden mixtures, you could say forbidden mixtures are the concern of the next section too, because we're talking about the mixture of persons sexually uh, that, that are forbidden, not for the same reason, because the mixtures are not are not holy, but you still have this the idea of uh, mixtures that are that's running through this this section, which su- suggests a kind of uh, I, I might have uh, alluded to Ivan Illich's book on gender when we talked previously about I think I think I, we did talk about it a bit when we talked about the uh, the previous law against women 
wearing the gear of a man, uh, wearing the implements or the the uh, the vessels of a man. Uh, probably military gear is first is the first uh, first thing in view. Uh, and Illich, to repeat what I I think I said then, Illich talks about traditional cultures that are organized by gender as opposed to what he calls the regime of sex in the modern world. Uh, and a gendered culture, you have sexual differentiations that are running through everything. So women not only have different sorts of dress and different sorts of uh, different lengths of hair, and they wear different sorts of jewelry, but they even walk differently and they they handle tools. They handle different tools than men do. Uh, they do different work. There's a there's a gender division that runs down the the center uh, and and divides society into these two zones. And something like that does seem to be going on, where you have these symbolic, forbidden mixtures that are part of everyday life for Israel, uh, and kind of a sign that the sexual differentiation is kind of a a model of social differentiation in general, or cultural differentiation in general. That uh, that sexual differentiation is not just a matter of the differences between male and female human beings, but that differentiation kind of penetrates down to the even to you know what you're going to put on uh, when you get up in the morning and and how you're going to who you, what animals you're going to you're uh, you're going to yoke together when you go plowing. But I guess that I mean more generally that that just suggests that sexual differentiation has a much more kind of architectonic role in. Israelite understanding of what of their social world, as it were. Something that might factor into that, Peter. I was I've been going recently through um, Ezra and Nehemiah, and there Ezra talks about the way in which the Israelites have um, uh, married um, Ammonites, at least I can't remember the other um, nations involved, Moabites and Ash- Ashdodites, I think as well. Um, and he uses the term that the holy seed has mixed itself um with the peoples of the lands and i was kind of thinking about that and then thinking about kind of the way in which the logic of deuteronomy 22 as we understand it might um play out in other fields and in new testament application and i was wondering if there's an idea that um israel is um as israel um, acquires, or let, let, let's, let's say, as people um, become Israelites, that's not really a, a mixture. You know, um, Ruth, let's say, becomes upon conversion um, a fully fledged member of Israel. Um, but the situation in Ezra is that th- there isn't actually genuine assimilation. And so there are people who don't understand Hebrew um, anymore, you know, and, and only speak the foreign languages um, and therefore can't understand um, scripture. And I was wondering if there's a sense in which that kind of mixture is all right when God chooses to do it in the church and where you have these genuine cultural um, differences in a holy body, um, but weren't appropriate kind of before time in Israel because it, it constituted uh, a kind of forbidden um, mixture having an, an assembly with the Ammonites, et cetera, which we'll get to in the next um, chapter. But I, I don't know if there's sort of something to that or not. Certainly, Paul uses this principle in 2 Corinthians 6 when he talks about not being unequally yoked with unbelievers, presumably referring to the text here. Um, and the emphasis there is upon believers and unbelievers in fellowship with each other and the importance of going out from a context of unbelieving fellowship and being separate and um, dare it um, is very much drawing upon Old Testament themes. Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. That holy status um, is a common theme within within Pauline teaching. We see it in places like 1 Corinthians 5, the um, dangerous admixture of leaven in the lump. Um, And so I think in that context, he's using it with a very clearly moral thrust. This is believers and unbelievers. It's um, not just 
two peoples being mixed, but there's a a sense of their moral status. Yeah, something that I'm, I mean, I was thinking about those kind of commandments, but something I'm struggling to put together is that in those situations, what's forbidden, it, it seems, is this mixture of what's holy and what's unholy. So the yoking of the believer with the unbeliever and, and the same for other examples, you know, the, the leaven is bad, etc. The leaven is sin and it works its way through a holy body. But here there are kind of two things which are good and fine in and of themselves. You know, an ox is fine, a donkey is fine. But then the combination of them is, at least in some contexts, um, out of bounds because it becomes holy. And and so I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I'm, I'm struggling to put the two things together to some extent. Could we see it in certain cases as a matter of the penultimacy of some of these laws? There's not a sense that these mixtures are completely out of bounds in all cases, because clearly the Lord has these. We can think about the way that the um, the mixture of certain animals um, would lead to hybrids, and we've got hybrids as the cherubim. We've got um, the king connected maybe with a hybrid animal in the beast that he rides. And so these are not necessarily completely out of bounds, but there's a sense in which these mixtures are waiting for their proper time. The division between Jew and Gentile, which is seen in some of the, um, the laws concerning foods and the separation from certain foods, those laws pass as Jews and Gentiles can be brought together. Some of the mixtures that we think of in this context with Jews and Gentiles being admixed because one has been set apart from um, the rest no longer applies in the new covenant. And so there can be a, a holy mixture of these two things that were formerly kept separate. Um, that would be my instinct for some of the distinctions that are being drawn here seeing them more as a limited measure for a period of time. Yeah, I took it that that's what uh, you were proposing, James, at the beginning, that there's a, there's something, one of the novelties of the New Covenant is the the not just the permission, but kind of the encouragement of uh, what appear to be forbidden mixtures in the Old Testament. And I think, yeah, uh, I'd, you know, you could put it under the heading of uh, ordinances of childhood, uh, when Israel is a child, then she's put under these restrictions and kept away from, kept away from uh, the the children next door who would be a bad influence. But when Israel comes to adulthood, then uh, she can be sent out as mat- as a mature witness and isn't going to be. Um, they can mix and and even mix within the church in different cultures and languages. So yeah, I think that's that's kind of the uh, it that's uh, an elevation of holiness, if you will. That comes with the new covenant. The whole people is elevated to a new status, and so mixtures that were uh, previously prohibited are now characteristic. Is that the kind of thing you had uh, you were going for, James? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that's 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 what I was angling at. I think one thing in the background here, also, if we're seeing some sort of allusion back to the story of Genesis thirty-four, in that context. There is the prospect of intermarriage allowed for if there would be circumcision um, practiced by the people of Shechem. And that suggests that it would not be a mixture in that case. It wouldn't be a, a wild beast and a, a tame one, or it would be um wouldn't be an unclean beast and a clean one. It would be two groups, both set apart to the Lord in the same way mixing among themselves and so there were conditions upon which those mixtures seem to have been possible but um certainly genesis 34 is not the best place to go for a deep understanding of the way things ought to be but um nonetheless it seems that that's part of what's envisaged in that context another thing that's interesting about verse 12 is in the context it might seem strange this isn't about on this isn't about forbidden mixtures, and it comes under the rubric of the seventh commandment concerning adultery. What is it doing in that point? It seems to me that Numbers 15 really gives us a clue where the Lord 
gives to Moses this law concerning the tassels. And the rationale is given as follows. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. In that context, it's very clearly about their holiness as the bride of Christ, as the bride of God. You can also see in that context an allusion back to the events of the preceding chapters. They're not to follow after their own heart or to spy out of, I think, is the language that's used there. The allusion back to the events in the land where they're spied out for 40 days and come back with a bad report. Now they're called to regard these tassels so that they would not spy out after their own heart. And the danger of unfaithfulness is very clear and prominent in the background when these tassels are given. And so its presence at this point is very appropriate. Yeah, thanks. That Yeah, that's uh, that's helpful. Uh, let's move on and look at the uh, the rest of chapter 22. The inclusio that I mentioned in verse 12 and verse 30 uh, gives us a hint of uh, what I think is a basically chiastic structure, a fairly simple, obvious chiasm. You've got uh, wings of garments in verse 12, wings of garments again in verse 30. The first case that's dealt with is a man accusing his wife of not being a virgin when she was uh, when they married, and the dispute has to do with her virginity and the proof that's offered by the parents is proof of virginity. Uh, so that's in verses uh, 13 through 21. You return to concern with uh, a man and a virgin in verses 28 and 29, the last case that's given in this chapter. If a man finds a girl who is a virgin who is not engaged and takes her and lies with her. Uh, so you have virgin, virgin. And then the central sections, uh, there are uh, basically three cases. Uh, you could you could categorize it as two. Verse 22 has to do with a man uh, sleeping with a married woman, that is a woman who's not his wife, obviously. And then two cases of a man uh, lying with a, a woman uh, who is engaged to another man. And uh, there the distinction has to do between whether it's happening in the city or country, whether she uh, consents or not to it. So the, the, uh, the chiasm is wing, wing on either side, virgin, virgin, just inside that, and then married, engaged at the, as the center sections. Uh, and the, the first the first uh, case, which has to do with a man accusing his wife of not being a virgin, does seem to have a kind of chiastic structure of its own. You have uh, what seems to be kind of a, a just an opening verse or opening scenario in verses 13 and 14. I took this woman and she's not a virgin. Uh, and then the father and mother enter in verse 15, and they bring uh, what uh, literally we could translate as the girls of virginities to the elders of the city. They present that the elders make a decision based on the evidence that they see, verse 18. Uh, there's, uh, or they're brought to the elders rather than verse 15. And then the, the father gives a speech in verses 16 and 17. So we're, the, the father is at the center of the chiasm. Then we're back to the elders making a decision, verses 18 and 19. And then if the charge is true in verse 21 or verses 20 and 21, uh, then she's stoned to death at the doorway of her father's house. Uh, so uh, within after the first couple of verses that set up the scenario, we have a father and mother at the beginning, father's house at the end, elders, elders, and at the center is this uh, the speech of the father uh, who is um, responding to the charge that his uh, daughter was not a virgin. So uh, that section seems to be a an inner chiasm within this larger uh, chiasm that covers verses twelve through twenty, uh, twelve through thirty, rather. Let me open a discussion of this first case. This is the accusation that the woman is not uh, a virgin at the marriage uh, with a couple of um, just uh, observations about the terminology that's being used. First of all, the, verse 13 uh, doesn't simply say, as my NASB translates, if any man takes a woman, takes a wife and goes into her and then turns against her, but uh, stronger than that, he comes to hate her or he hates her. Uh, that brings it into relation with uh, the earlier law that we had concerning the inheritance. Uh, when a man has two wives, one hated, one loved, uh, 
uh, and the uh, firstborn is the the son of the hated woman. Uh, he has the right of the firstborn, even though his father prefers the the uh, the other wife. So there's a there's at least a verbal connection with that, and it also occurs to me that there's a there's a link back to what we find early in Deuteronomy, uh, where Moses is recounting what Israel said at Kadesh Barnea when they refused to go into the land, and the charge against the Lord was that He had brought Israel out, and then began to, to hate Israel and decided to kill Israel in the wilderness. So there's this charge of charge of uh, the Lord's hatred against his against his people. Here you have a man who turns from taking a wife, consummating the marriage, goes into her means he enters in. Uh, it's a has sexual connotations and then turns again then hates her. It's an actual, actual consummated marriage. So the, the the fact that he's hating her that might be the source of the charge that he brings. Because he hates her, he wants to defame her. Of course, there is a possibility, verses 20 and 21 indicate, that even though he turns against her, the, the hatred and the opposition might be justified because the woman, in fact, was not a virgin when she when she married him. So that's one, one uh, point of terminology. The other point of term- terminology is the overlap that I think is found not only here, but in a lot of places in the Old Testament uh, between uh, uh, sexual and liturgical activity or approach. So I mentioned that the man goes into the woman uh, in verse 13. That's that's a verb. It's it's a very, very common verb, but it's used in liturgical contexts when uh, a someone is uh, enters into the uh, into the tabernacle courts. Uh, even stronger in verse 14, the woman the man's charge is I took this woman and when I drew near to her, I did not find her a virgin. And that's karav. Uh, the verb is karav, which means as as I translated to draw near, and it's an it's the it's the kind of opening riff at the beginning of Leviticus. If a man causes to come near an offering, the offering itself is a korban, which is based on the verb karav. Uh, so there's this uh, intermixing of terminology that uh, I think even the uncovering nakedness and and pulling back a a, a skirt, pulling back the wings, uh, relates in some way to the uh, to the to a violation of the tabernacle, uh, of the tabernacle uh, precincts, the tabernacle space. So these various uh, relations be- or uh, verbal connections between sexual approach, sexual encounter, and liturgical approach and liturgical encounter. What I'm I'm not suggesting that uh, sexual intercourse is itself a wor- an act of worship or liturgical act, but rather there's a, a a biblical analogy that I think goes back all the way to the creation of woman uh, and is is brought up uh, implicitly in Paul's teaching on on marriage. There's this analogy between the liturgical encounter that the people of God have as the bride with their Lord and the sexual encounter that a man and a woman have in marriage. There seems to be an imbalance in this law that invites closer reflection. When we think about the typical example when someone has brought false witness against another party, and has led to uh, or put them in least in jeopardy of a punishment that has a certain degree of severity. If they are found guilty of false witness, they should bear that judgment themselves. And yet the man here, the punishment that he suffers is not the one who bears false witness against his wife. It's not the um, death penalty and being stoned with stones that the woman suffers if she's found guilty. Rather, it's the inability to have a divorce. There's um, a fine that needs to be paid to the father of the young woman, and there are other judgments in his whipping, etc. That suggests to me that there's something a bit more going on here, that the law is primarily dealing with the situation where a woman who had not been faithful was, um, or a situation where a man is seeking to divorce a woman. And on the other hand, there's the possibility of a family trying to trap that man within the marriage and not allow the divorce to go ahead. If the um, woman was a virgin, then the woman is defended against the charge, the man is judged. If the woman is unfaithful, 
and the family is refusing to let the divorce go ahead and trying to trap the man within it, then she is judged. But the normal case, it seems to me, is that the woman, the divorce would go ahead and the family would not present any obstacle to it. And that, it seems to me, accounts for the asymmetry in the judgment. The judgment typically would be upon a man who is trying to get out of a marriage in a situation where the family is trying to, might be trying to keep him within it, the woman's family. And so this ensures that the woman is preserved within that relationship if the man wants to get out unlawfully. And also, if the family is trying to trap the husband, then the woman suffers the consequences of her unfaithfulness. But the ordinary case here seems to be the situation where the man is bringing forward a false claim against his wife, um, which is interesting again. I didn't quite follow that, Alistair. So I get the asymmetry. Um, but what, what kind of scenario are you um, envisaging? So there are three possible cases. There's the situation where the woman has been found to be unfaithful and mm. the man seeks a divorce and the woman's family just presents no obstacle, they get divorced. There is the other situation, which is the primary one in view here, where the man makes the charge against his wife. And that charge is either false or true. And the family wants to keep the, the woman's family insists that they will not allow the divorce to go ahead. In that situation, that's where this law applies. And that's why the man's judgment, if he's bringing a false charge, is that he cannot get a divorce and these things are brought upon him. Um, whereas the woman, if she's found to be unfaithful, and it's clear that the family are trying to trap this man in a marriage with an unfaithful woman, that's where the um, death penalty is brought upon the woman. Right. I, I guess the the question I have with that uh, is the first scenario that you gave, Alistair, because it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like divorce is an option in this particular scenario. Uh, what uh, Deuteronomy twenty four speak uh, speaks of, uh, if the man finds something, a thing of nakedness, is the phrasing that's used in chapter twenty four, uh, some unclean thing in his wife, then uh, uh, then there's a procedure for divorce, and there's rules about. A reunion after divorce and so on, but this is not about behavior within the marriage. I mean that um, the distinction I would make between those two passages would be chapter twenty four is dealing with something unclean in the woman uh, at uh, during the course of the marriage. This is talking about behavior prior to the marriage, and in that case, the, it seems like you only have two scenarios. One is that the charge is not true and the marriage stays, or the charge is true. Uh, and uh, the girl is executed. The question I have with that interpretation is whether it would explain for the asymmetry between the judgment upon the man who's brought forward the false charge and the woman who suffers the consequence of the true charge. If the issue is primarily um, judgment upon the, if the issue is um, one of the family trying to trap the man in the marriage or the man um, trying to escape unlawfully from the marriage, I think it makes a bit more sense of that asymmetry. Because in the case where the woman has been unfaithful and the family has tried to trap the man in the marriage with her, it would explain why the judgment on her is what it is. Yet we do have situations such as with Joseph and Mary where the possibility of putting away quietly is uh, seen as a positive righteous one um, for actions done prior to entering into union with the woman and it seems to me that that would explain something a bit a bit more about the role of the various parties here yeah so i guess you're, you're saying that the if the rule of uh, false witness were applied then he's accusing the girl of something that wouldn't be a death penalty he should suffer the death penalty if it's a false charge against her. That's that's the asymmetry that you're saying. Yes. Yeah. Um, and the fact that that isn't applied here suggests that maybe something different is going on, that the issue is yeah. not primarily that he's trying to bring the death penalty upon her, but that he's trying to get trying out, to get of, out of it. Right. Right. I mean, yeah. couldn't, couldn't the ahead, asymmetry just be 
explained by the fact that the, I mean, the the pre- the other laws that we were talking about were to do with uh, bringing a knowingly false charge in order to um, get someone else done for murder or or, or whatever. So de- deliberate false witness. Presumably, here the guy actually believes this. So couldn't the difference here, the asymmetry, be due to the fact that a false but sincere accusation is different from, you know, marital unfaithfulness or, 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 you know, premarital sex compounded with all sorts of deliberate lies on on top of it in order for the marriage to go ahead. Like, couldn't that be why there's an asymmetry? I think there's a bit more than just suspicion here. He's accusing her of misconduct, bringing a bad name upon her, He's making a big public stink about this. This isn't just suspicion. Um, we also have the law of um, the test of jealousy in Numbers 5, which would apply in some cases adjacent to, or perhaps some of these cases. And so I think there's a bit more going on than just suspicion and bringing it forward, wanting to get the evidence. This is a very big public fight in which he's accusing his wife of some very serious things and the evidence has to be brought forward. Yeah. I, I think that's right for sure. Uh, but I didn't think James, James's distinction wasn't, wasn't between uh, something that's a public fight and something that's not. It's between it's, it's what the accuser thinks he's doing, whether he's doing it deliberately in order to, uh, that was the scenario. I, I, I think we, highlighted at least when we talked about false witness it's a scenario where the accuser is trying to uh, he hates his neighbor and he's trying to get his get the uh, the uh, elders of the of the town to be his agent of, for committing murder judicial murder here i agree with james that you could explain the discrepancy by saying that uh, he thinks that she is in fact was not a virgin and uh, he does make a public stink about it for sure and there's a public there's a public evidence presented uh, but it's not because he's he's deliberately trying to get out of the marriage or deliberately trying to get his wife, uh, the woman killed. I guess that would be part of the part of the judgment that the elders would have to make. Uh, if James's James's take on this is correct, then the elders would have to decide that you know he sincerely believed that this was the case. How do you make that decision? I don't know. But as opposed to somebody who's actually trying to manipulate the system in order to get out of a marriage or in order to harm his his wife get his wife killed, uh, that could be a, a judgment that the that the uh, elders would have to make. In other words, is this a case of uh, sincere false accusation or is it a case of uh, deliberate false witness? Uh, one of the things that I think is intriguing here is the, the role that the parents play uh, in the whole scenario. It's a public accusation, as Alistair has highlighted. Uh, he sets a name of evil on her is the terminology that uh, verse 14 uses. Uh, that so there's a there's a public defamation of her character and of her reputation, and then the elders are called. So this is a this is a court situation, a local court situation, and the parents bring out evidence to defend her. So there's again, uh, public accusation requires public uh, a public refutation, but it's the parents that take that role, which is intriguing to me, and the the, the uh, which links up I think with the fact that uh, it's the father who receives the pretty large sum of a hundred hundred silvers uh if the man is man's accusation is found to be false um that suggests that the parents on the one hand the parents are the guardians and protectors of the of the girl's virginity guarantors of her virginity and an accusation against her is implicitly an accusation against the father in his house and his reputation uh, and what needs to be compensated is his name uh his uh his daughter's name uh, but also his name, because the implication is that you let your you let your daughter run wild while she was in your house. She was wanton while she was in your house. That's not true. So he he pays a pays a, a, a compensation. Um, so I, 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 there's a it's interesting role that the parents have in overseeing and guarding the the sexual purity of their daughter, uh, which is um, let me think about this in in. Uh, contemporary terms uh largely that kind of response that sense of responsibility has gone out out the window 
apart from certain certain Christian circles where this you know this kind of responsibility is emphasized, uh, the general cultural um, norm is not for parents to have maybe even any, any knowledge of the sexual activity of their of their children, and certainly wouldn't see themselves as guardians of sexual purity. Uh, and particularly even after the girls married, they're going to be called in and 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 give evidence of uh, their their daughter's sexual purity at the time of the marriage. There's a good good bit more going on in this passage that we'll want to cover. Um, our time is running long in this episode, so please tune in next time where we will continue to talk about Deuteronomy 22. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.